I was struck by uh, the idea of attitude. And as you'll see when we read the passage in just a minute, um, it's something which permeates our culture, but because it's sort of below the surface, we don't always notice it. Now, I, I will, I'm happy to say I passed up the opportunity to use examples from the election. <laughs> Nothing. But when I started to think about attitude, the first thing that came to mind are my six grandchildren. <laughs> and um, I realized that attitude is something which children are maybe quicker to show than others. You've all seen a child with attitude, right? Maybe you have a child with attitude. Um, but lest I point fingers at other children, I should tell you a little story. My father was a preacher in the Free Methodist Church and also a professor. And the story is told of me when I was five years old. Now, my dad was the preacher, and my mom was the pianist and sat in the corner and played the piano. And I was assigned to the second row, which was usually empty, except for my mom when she was sitting with me during the sermon and other parts of the service. So when she would go to play, I was alone in the second row. And in those days, little kids wore leather-soled shoes. And in those days, we didn't have cushions on our pews. It was considered somewhat unchristian, you see. So almost inevitably, I took the opportunity to walk the length of the pew during the hymns, during the songs, and sometimes even in the prayer time when my mom had to be ready to play. Well, you can imagine I got lots of talks about this. And on one occasion, my mom came back and sat down next to me, and she gave me the Vulcan death grip. And she said, I want you to sit down. And I'm told that I sat down with a thump. And then after a moment, I turned to her and I said, Mom, I may be sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. <laughs> now that's attitude. But lest you think attitude is reserved only for young people, you've all seen grown-ups with attitude too, haven't you? Grown-ups with attitude. And I won't name all the people, but some of them are familiar. I, too, have had attitude as an adult. In about 1980, I was a professor at Westmont, and then president, now late Dr. David Winter, was managing the college as best he could, but in the eyes of this young 29-year-old faculty member, he wasn't doing a very good job. I used to say, man, I could do a better job than that. And in fact, on one occasion in a public gathering, I said, the only reason that things happen at Westmont is because the president uses the management philosophy that the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Well, word of that got back to Dr. Winter, and he had me in his office within about an hour. I know who squealed on me, by the way. And he looked at me and he said, Jim, the trouble with you is you think that all administrators are either incompetent or evil. And later as a president, I discovered that there is a third option. I mean, things can be complicated. <laughs> but at that point, he said, you think that administrators are either incompetent or evil. And I have to shamefully say, I looked him right in the eye and I said, Dr. Winter, I have never doubted your intentions. Effectively calling him stupid. So attitude is something that young people have. Attitude is something that older people have. In the words of that famous Captain Jack Sparrow, 
The problem is not the problem. The problem is your attitude with the problem. There are passages... I'll keep it. There are passages throughout Scripture that talk to us about attitude. And the lectionary reading for today is one of those. But just before the lectionary reading, there's a passage that reminds us that attitude is the source of both actions and words. You know, some people say actions speak louder than words, and that's probably true. But attitude is the source of both of them. In Luke 6, we read, You don't get wormy apples off of a healthy tree, nor good apples off of a diseased tree. The health of the apple tells the health of the tree. It's who you are, not what you say and do that counts. Your true being brims over into true words and deeds. Attitude is the source of both action and words. Will you stand with me as we read the gospel reading for today? He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. You may be seated. Luke is full of parables. It's full of stories. And our parable for today is really only one among many. There's the parable of the widow, the persistent widow. There's the parable of the ten talents. There's the story about the children coming to Jesus. There's the story about the rich young ruler and Zacchaeus up in the tree. The money changer. Jesus coming into Jerusalem on a colt. Lots of stories in Luke. And what I found as I read through all of them these past week, is that they all seem to have an element about attitude. And that's what jumped out at me, particularly in our passage for today. A parable. What's a parable? Well, it comes from two words, para and bowl, of course. And para means to come alongside. And bowl means to throw. And so a parable is really a story told to throw out an idea that comes alongside and serves as an analogy to make a spiritual point. Most of us know that. And Jesus loved to use parables. These parables, I think, sink in more effectively. So let's look at this particular one. In verse 9, it says, to begin with, he addressed some. In other words, the parable wasn't intended for everyone. It was addressed only for some. Those with attitude. Now, Matthew Henry, a commentator, gives us a nice little list that I found interesting as to to sort of check and see if you have attitude. He says, first of all, it's the people that have great conceit. And I thought, oh, that's not me. I'm not conceited. 
Some of you may disagree, but in any case, that didn't seem to apply, and maybe it doesn't apply to you. But then he goes on, he says, it's people who think that they're holier than their neighbors. I don't know, if you're sitting with me in the pew, we don't probably often sit and think I'm so much better than my neighbor. Maybe you do. But then he goes on and he says, it's people who have a high opinion of their own righteousness, and they depend on it. Well, getting a little uncomfortable. And then finally he says, it's people who thought themselves to be as good as they needed to be. Who has attitude? This parable is addressed to those. Verse 10 goes on to say, two men came to church. Now, who are these people? Well, Pharisee. But that word doesn't always mean a lot to us. It's a church leader. It's someone who's educated. It's someone who's respected. It's someone who's looked up to as a role model. The Pharisee came to church. And who's the tax collector? Well, you know, we don't have these people exactly running around the neighborhood. Maybe some of you work for the IRS, but we might not know that. A tax collector, as scripture says, was despised because the tax collector could pretty well do what he pleased and he could change the tax depending on his own whim. And so he was despised because usually they were perceived to be corrupt people and they were often allied with the wrong political party. Now we don't often find it hard to despise, at least recently, people that belong to the wrong political party. A tax collector then was someone that was despised in the culture. And who would that be today? Well, it's hard to say. I think politicians get a pretty rough rap these days. I think Wall Streeters get a pretty rough rap. I think lawyers get a rough rap. And since my son's on Wall Street and my daughter's a lawyer, I feel the pain. <laughs> Police these days are often getting a bad rap. Who are the despised people in our communities? Well, what about these two men? They went up to church. Now, today, the idea of just going to church is not such a big deal as it used to be. Some of you that go back to the early 50s with me and remember going to church know that it was a social thing. You showed up. It was what you did. Some parts of our country, that's still true. I lived in Virginia, and in Virginia, there's still a social stigma attached to not attending church, and the politicians were always in the same first and second rows. In our day, that's not necessarily true, at least in our culture. But back then, showing up was important. And so these men went up to the church. But as Matthew Henry reminds us, not everybody that we see in church will be at the right hand of the Father on the Day of Judgment. Church is not what it's about. Turn to verse 11, and in this case, 11 and 13. We'll skip over 12 for a minute. Verses 11 and 13 tell us about attitude, particularly as it shows up in posture. And I want to say more about that in a couple minutes. The Pharisee stood alone. And in the King James, it says he prayed to himself. It wasn't even a real prayer. When you pray, you don't pray to yourself. He prayed to himself. And we've already read what he said. The tax collector on the other hand, stood far off. He had his head down. He was ashamed. And he beat his chest. Now mind you, we don't beat our chests today, but we know what it means. David used to beat his chest because he perceived his heart as the source of his sin. 
But the point here is that posture tells us a lot about attitude. And in some of the pictures that I put up there a moment ago, we could see it, couldn't we? That's kind of how we know the attitude. Yes, words. Yes, deeds. But posture. So the question is, what is our posture? Verse 12. Now this guy, this tax collector, was not a bad guy. I mean, he's not a criminal. He hasn't done anything bad. He did good things, didn't he? He wasn't just talk. The Pharisee was action. And for us, mostly, we think, wow, if he's acting well and speaking well, then by and large, he's a good guy. What did he do? He fast. He fasted twice a week. And in recent months, Denny has talked about fasting as a spiritual discipline that isn't good in itself, but it equips us to become the person through which the Holy Spirit can do good things. Fasting is a discipline. And this Pharisee fasted. He tithed. Again, a discipline that may not be good in itself, but it equips us to be used of God. And in this case, it actually helped other people because of the finances that it brought in. So he wasn't a bad guy. But verse 14 gives us the verdict. Despite his good words and even his good deeds, he was not in right relationship to God. The tax collector was. I tell you, this man went home justified rather than the other, for all who exalt themselves will be humbled. But all who humble themselves will be exalted. So what was the Pharisee's problem? As Captain Jack Sparrow puts it, the problem is not the problem. The problem is your attitude about the problem. What attitudes today separate us from God? So let me say a couple things about attitude, how we get it and how we lose it. In the case of the Pharisee, attitude came from pride. And I have to say attitude usually comes from pride. Some would say pride is the root of all evil, going back as far at least as Eve, who wanted to be like God. Now I've been married, and now I'm engaged, and I know that pride can be a source of conflict. It can be a source of attitude. And if you haven't experienced that in your own relationships, then good luck. But I don't want to focus on that today. There are examples throughout Scripture, and one of the best is Moses. Now, you remember Moses had attitude. In Egypt, he saw his people being persecuted. And he got mad and he went and he killed the people that were persecuting his people. And the next day, this is in Exodus 2, even his own people saw him outside and says, Oh, are you going to kill us too? Moses had attitude. Now, mind you, his intentions were good, right? He had a plan. It was his plan, though. It was his attitude. He was a man full of pride. So what was the solution in his case? Well, the solution generally to the problem of pride is humility. And how did that work for Moses? In Numbers 12, you recall, we saw that Moses was driven out of Egypt, and he went into the wilderness on his own. And God says that Moses became the meekest man on earth. Moses, educated in the royal court, a role model for all the Hebrews, in all of these good things. 
he became the meekest man on earth. Now the word meek is not a word that we like in our language. It sort of means milk toasty. It means kind of, I don't know. Somebody comes up to you and says, wow, I'm really impressed, Doug. You're meek. <laughs> Kittens are meek, maybe. But the word meek applied to Moses, who was the meekest man on the face of the earth, comes from the Greek word proutes. And that word means strength under control. I'm reminded of the river in northern Zimbabwe, which is the Zambezi River, and it crashes through the Batonka Gorge. Violent and exciting and wild. But apart from those of us that rafted it, pretty useless. Until it gets to the bottom where they've dammed it up. And Lake Kariba provides hydroelectric power for all of Zimbabwe and all of Mozambique and all of Zambia. So meekness may sound bad, but Moses learned to be humble and in his humility became useful to God. How was it that he became meek? How was it that he became humble? Well, the key word I think here, pride, needs to become humility, and we accomplish that through becoming broken. And Moses was broken. He was broken in the desert, remember? In the third chapter of Exodus, we read how God came to him and said, could you do this for me? And he said, no, I can't do that. I can't do that. I can't do that. He was broken in his spirit. But it wasn't just Moses who illustrates humility as the key to overcoming pride and the attitude of pride. Christ himself, more than anything else, was humble. The famous passage in the second chapter of Philippians, the kenosis passage, we call it reminds us that Christ himself had to be broken before his power could be available and useful. Had he retained an attitude of pride, he would not have been our Savior and our Redeemer. And most of you remember the passage in Philippians that illustrates this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the other. In your relationship with one another, have the same mind as Christ, who being in the very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So instead of pride, we have to replace it with humility. And we do that by allowing ourselves to be broken. Moses was broken in the desert. Christ was broken in Gethsemane and on the cross. And the tax collector was broken over his sin. This is an attitude of our hearts. What does it mean to be broken? It's when we come to a place where we have really no options. Life is out of control. You ever felt that? You're ready to give up. You have no rope. You're at the end of your rope. And you're exhausted. That's what it means to be broken. And that's often revealed in our posture. Because attitude is revealed in our posture. There are lots of ways that we can tell that a person is broken. What does brokenness look like today? You know, it probably doesn't mean standing there and going like this. But what would a posture of brokenness look like in the pew, up front? What would it look like? Would our head be down? 
I know when I'm exhausted at the end of my rope, I sometimes just shake my head. What is your posture of brokenness? But you know, I was finished thinking about this and I thought, well, you know, before I, I conclude that the problem of attitude is rooted in pride, which is solved by humility, which is accomplished by brokenness, I thought, you know, I, I need to look beyond just children and, and adults in our culture pictures. Who in our culture can I think of that captures the notion of attitude? Well, I have to say that rappers came to mind. <laughs> and I did a Google search, as most of us do, and I turned up a rapper actually named Attitude. This rapper named Attitude, Timothy Clayton, born in 1978 in Birmingham, wrote a song called Afraid. Nelly Furtado created the lyrics. And you can see that this is someone who understands attitude. What they say, what they say, what they say. You speak out all you feel is defiance. All you need is some self-reliance, because this world is going to always try us. And all you wanted was to run for cover. Well, here's looking to yourself and no other. We're all searching for that something special, and we keep on running. We all have the choice to take the lead or follow. I want to feel the light shine on me. You're so afraid of what people might say. You're going to break, so please don't do it. You want to spread your wings, but you're not sure. Don't want to leave your comforts. Want to find a cure. We're afraid of who we see in the mirror. We want to let go, but it feels too pure. Who wants to be alone in this world? You look around, and all you see is hurt. It dawned on me that another source of attitude is pride, yes, but beneath the pride is fear, deep fear. And that while most of us maybe today won't show attitude because we are full of pride, some of us may, uh, some of us have attitude because we're afraid. And it struck me as I read that rap that sometimes pride covers for fear. We're not broken because we're just afraid. And so for some of us, the self-destructive pride and resistance is rooted in something very deep, a very deep fear. So what is the solution? Well, the solution to fear is trust. And even the rapper Attitude knew this. Look at the last lines of this very same song. But the light, it always finds us if we move with a little trust. So what is the method then for accomplishing this kind of trust? How do we learn to trust? Well, in my book, trusting means letting go. In many ways, it's like being broken. It's letting go in that moment when you're at the end of your rope. And by the way, this is the heart of the good news of Jesus Christ. That when we are broken, when we are afraid, we can trust because he's there. And we can throw ourselves on him. When the attitude of pride covering fear overwhelms us, give up, let go, throw ourselves into God's hands and trust him. Moses did this in the desert when God challenged him to be the leader. God said, I'll be with you. And Moses believed him. Jesus did this in Gethsemane and on the cross. I give up. I commit my spirit to you. 
He trusted and overcame the fear that was at the heart of Moses and probably at our, our own Lord's heart in Gethsemane and on the cross. The tax collector surely did this because he cries out, Have mercy on me, forgive me a sinner. So the good news, no, not the good news, the great news, my friends, is that no matter how our past looks, no matter how much attitude we have, he can make us right. The great news is that we can throw ourselves into his arms. On September 13, 1996, at the age of 25, Tupac Shakur was murdered in his car in Las Vegas. It was a drive-by shooting that was part of an East-West gang war. But certainly Tupac Shakur was someone with attitude. In fact, the last words to a police officer who was trying to find out who did it were words I can't even repeat in this congregation. Right to the end, he had attitude. But the amazing thing despite the fact that I would never recommend this man as a role model, the amazing thing is that even he, with his attitude, rooted in pride, founded perhaps in deep fear, understood the need for good news. He understood the, good, the need for good news in his song, Until the End of Time. Perhaps I was addicted to the dark side. Somewhere inside my childhood witnessed my heart die. But you could run to me when you need me. I'll never leave. I just needed someone to believe in, as you can see. Please, Lord, forgive me for my life of sin. My hard stare seems to scare all my sister's kids, so you know I don't hang around the house much. Ain't flashed a smile in a long while. My attitude got me walking solo, right out alone on my lolo. Watching the whole world move in slow-mo. So, take these broken wings. Use your hands to come and heal me once again. So I can fly away until the end of time. Until the end of time. Until the end of time. Will you bow your heads with me?